I need you to pretend for just a moment that you're not in church, where the correct answer to almost every question is God, Jesus, all right? Deal? So we can think honestly about how we might really answer these questions. What will it take for you to be a great person in your own estimation and become secure in that greatness? The most honest place for us to begin to answer that question is just to admit that in some way, most of us want to be great in our life. In some place, in some way. Great at home, uh, professionally, educationally, at the gym, beast, you know. That's not where I'm great, but anyway. <laughs> what will you have to have to consider yourself great and secure? Who will you need to know? What will you need to know? What will you have to accomplish? What relationships will you have to have in place? What will your sphere of influence truly need to be before you feel like a great person and secure in your greatness. If we will ever make a difference in this place for Jesus' sake, then you and I as individuals and together as a church, if we'll ever be effective in advancing the kingdom of God through loving other people with the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, then we must find our security and our greatness in who we are in Christ. So there it is, right? The church answer. Jesus, that's the answer. But it's true. We will have things in this life. Jesus must be the motivation to get those things. We will do things in this life. Jesus must be the motivation why we do them. We will know things in this life. Jesus must be the motivation for us to know them. We will influence people in this life. We must influence them toward Jesus. All that to say, you and I must find our yes in Jesus. That's kind of my theme for this year. I wish I had a little button. Wouldn't that be a great button? Find your yes in Jesus. Find your fulfillment in Christ. Yes. Find your greatness in Christ. Yes. Find your security in Christ. Yes. Find your yes in Jesus right? Hello. <laughs> All right. Thank you. Take your Bibles if you have them. If not, there's one in the pew in front of you. Turn to the Gospel of Matthew, the second chapter. When you found Matthew chapter 2, I'm going to ask you to stand as we hear read this morning from the Word of the living God. Matthew chapter 2, beginning in verse 16, this is the Word of the Lord. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem, and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel, weeping for her children, she refused to be comforted because they are no more. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word once again, 
for the truth that it contains, for the power within your word when joined by your spirit to be, bring change in our hearts and our lives. Bring that change this morning, we pray, so that all of us in this room will find our yes in Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen. Thank you. you. May be seated. To us, Herod is one of the notorious bad guys of the Bible. That's how we view him. And yet history calls him great. Herod the Great. And though you and I definitely question that greatness, the people reading Matthew's gospel for the very first time wouldn't have to ask Why is Herod great? They knew why he was great. He was a prominent figure in a powerful political dynasty. His father was a friend to Julius Caesar. Because of that friendship, he was well rewarded. A young Herod was close friends with Cleopatra. Together they had a monopoly in the business world on asphalt that they took from the Dead Sea. Herod was also part of the intrigue around Antony and Cleopatra and that thing they had going. Herod was right there in the middle of it, advising Mark Antony. Those reading Matthew's gospel for the first time knew that Herod the Great's grandson was still ruling over them. Aside from politics, everywhere people looked, there were signs of Herod's greatness. He ruled for 33 years, and during that time, he built extensively. And he built beautiful things throughout Palestine. Temples, aqueducts, cities, palaces, fortresses, like Masada and the Antonia Fortress. He engineered and oversaw the construction of a man-made harbor. Can you imagine? It was huge. The port called Caesarea. Quite impressive feat for the B.C. years. His greatest achievement was building the second temple in Jerusalem, which was known for its magnificence throughout the entire world. He was a patron of the arts and culture, and he sponsored the 12 B.C. Olympics. All these things he did. And so these are some of the reasons that Herod was called great. And I mentioned them to you, believe it or not, not to bore you with history, but to build Herod's resume to you. Because we value, we do, we value impressive resumes and we're impressed by the people who have them. And that's not a bad thing when resumes are used for the right purpose. The the, the point is that Herod should have been secure in his greatness, right? Considering all the things that he had done, his power, all the things that he had built. And yet Matthew tells us In chapter 2, verse 3, that when Herod heard that this baby was born, Jesus, he was troubled. The news of Jesus' birth caused inward turmoil in Herod. It, It stirred him up. It disturbed him. It unsettled him. But why? Why was he not secure at his own greatness? Then we come to the passage that we read this morning. Why did Herod do what he did? To the children in Bethlehem just to assure that Jesus would be put to death. Matthew gives us the answer. Look in verse 16. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, 
became furious. The word that is translated tricked in the ESV means to be played for a fool, to mock, to ridicule, to make fun of. Now this is how Herod interpreted the behavior of the wise men when they did not return to him. <laughs> Herod, another king, the real king has been born. We don't need you. And so Herod feels reduced in the eyes of these foreign dignitaries. Belittled. Ignored. No one likes to be ignored. Do you like to be ignored? No. Because when you're ignored, it communicates that you're insignificant. And that who you are and what you think or what you say isn't worthy of someone else's attention. Now in actuality, we are not told what the wise men thought of Herod. They might have had high regard for him. They too might have thought he was a great man. They might have thought he was completely sincere when he said to them, Oh, tell me where Jesus is so that I might come and worship him as well. We are told that the only reason the wise men did not go back to Herod is because they were warned in a dream not to. So here's the thing. It's Herod's interpretation of their behavior that leads him to become so furious. And this is the very point that you and I get in trouble in our lives all the time. When we begin to interpret other people's behavior and we act or react based on what we think to be true. I had a professor in seminary who said this over and over. It's intellectually dishonest to impute motivation to another person. It's intellectually dishonest to impute motivation to another person. And that's true. And yet you and I, we know that we know that we know that we know why somebody did something. Until, of course, we find out that that's not the reason at all. In his book, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, a great book, 20, 30 years ago, Steve, Stephen Covey, the author, writes this about an interaction that he had with a man on a subway. It was a Sunday morning. People were sitting quietly, some reading newspapers, some lost in thought, some resting with their eyes closed. It was a calm, peaceful scene. Then, suddenly, a man and his children entered the subway car. The children were so loud and rambunctious that instantly the whole climate changed. The man sat down next to me and closed his eyes, apparently oblivious to the situation. The children were yelling back and forth, throwing things, even grabbing people's papers. It was very disturbing. And yet the man sitting next to me did nothing. It was difficult not to feel irritated. I could not believe that he could be so insensitive as to let his children run wild like that and do nothing about it, taking no responsibility at all. It was easy to see that everyone else on the subway felt irritated too. So finally, with what I felt like was an unusual patience and restraint, I turned to him and said, Sir, your children are really disturbing a lot of people. I wonder if you couldn't control them a little more. So get the picture. People on the subway know that they know that they know that these children are brats and that their father is a terrible father who will not or cannot discipline his children. The man lifted his gaze 
as if to come to a consciousness of the situation for the first time and said softly, Oh, you're right. I guess I should do something about it. We just came from the hospital where their mother died about an hour ago. I don't know what to think, and I guess they don't know how to handle it either. See, we think we know, and we don't know. So we misinterpret other people and their behavior. Herod assumed he knew why the wise men did what they did. He believed that they were mocking him and considered him insignificant. And so Herod acted out of his own insecurities and false assumptions and wrong interpretations. Matthew is going to use this word for tricked, the same one used here, three more times in his gospel. And I'm going to read all three of them because in the reading of them, the contrast is going to come out that's going to challenge you and me about our own insecurities. Challenge us to think about what makes us great. To think about how we act and react to other people's actions and behaviors. To make us ask ourselves whether we will act to protect ourselves and our kingdoms. Or whether you and I will act and react in ways that show that we have a bigger vision for the kingdom of God. The next time that Matthew uses this word is in chapter 20, verse 18. Jesus says there, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked, same word, and flogged and crucified. And the third day he will rise again. The next time Matthew uses it is in Matthew chapter 27. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And then in Matthew 27, 41. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, he saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross and we will believe him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires. For he said, I am the son of God. The point of ridicule is clear. Jesus, you are not who you claim to be, a king. And so they mock him with a crown of thorns. And they put a royal scepter in his hand, a reed. And they kneel down saying, Hail, King of the Jews. Looking up at Jesus on the cross, they mocked the so-called Savior of the world that could not save himself and that his own father doesn't deem him worthy of saving. They mock the one who is supposed to be omnipotent because to them he appears to be powerless and impotent. How will King Jesus respond when he's mocked like Herod considered himself to be mocked? Jesus responds to all that was being done to him and to all that was being said to him 
by praying. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Quite a contrast, isn't it? When Herod was mocked, he became enraged. When Jesus was mocked, he prayed. When Herod was mocked, he killed others. When Jesus was mocked, he died himself. I want to be like Jesus. He didn't defend himself against the mockers. He did not allow their ridicule to push him or prod him into doing something that he could have done just to prove himself. You know, Scripture tells us that the chariots of God are twice 10,000, thousands upon thousands. I wonder who drives those chariots. Scripture tells us the angels of heaven are innumerable. And Jesus knows all the angels because he created all of them. And the angels know him as well. A company of them were sent to proclaim his birth. And after he'd endured 40 days in the wilderness, fasting and being tempted by Satan, angels came then and they ministered to Jesus. They could have come now. How powerful the hand of God must have been to prevent the angels from coming. Jesus said in Matthew 26 when they came to arrest them, Do you think I cannot call on my Father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? But Jesus didn't do that. He was not motivated by a need to silence the mockers. I'll show you. He was so completely secure in who he was and what he had come to do. And he said it himself in the next verse, Matthew 26, 54. But how then would the scripture be fulfilled that say it must happen this way? I won't call the angels. This must happen. Enduring the mocking, enduring the ridicule, not reacting to it in the way he could, in the way that would defend himself and his reputation, that brings about the greater purpose of God. That reaction builds the kingdom of God by providing people like you and me rescue. So that through faith in this one who is mocked, we can be rescued out of Satan's kingdom of darkness and we can be transported into God's kingdom of light. Jesus is here for that purpose, to build the kingdom of God. Jesus knew who he was and what he had come to do. And here's the thing. You and I can have that very same security. You and I can have the same intentionality that Jesus had. You and I can let the mocking go. You and I can let the misrepresentations go. We don't have to react. Jesus makes it possible for us not to react because Jesus has given us a new identity, right? Scripture tells us over and over and over again that we are in Christ. Positionally, we are in Him. Where Jesus is, we are, right? We're in Him. He's in glory. We'll be in glory. That's our new identity. Scripture says that we are sons and daughters of God, co-heirs with Christ. Jesus says to His disciples, I'll call you friends. We're friends of Jesus. This is our identity. And so you and I should be secure. But all of us know this, what we should be, who we should be, and who we actually are 
are often two different realities. So let's think about that for a minute in order that we might correct it so that we will be secure in our identity and greatness in Christ. Last week, we talked about Satan being the prince of this world. And we said he's a prince, not a king. He'll never be a king. He'll never rule. His passion to do that very thing has forever been thwarted, and so he is now an angry enemy. And while he may never be king, Satan certainly influences the kings and the kingdoms of this world, i.e. Herod. But if we only think of kings and kingdoms as monarchies over geographic regions, then we're going to exclude ourselves from the discussion that Matthew is having here that will benefit us greatly. Because see, our lives are microcosms of kingdoms. You're a little kingdom unto yourself, aren't you? You're so cute. Right? You, you are king of your life. You are queen of your life. So the question is, what is influencing? Who is influencing you, O king, O queen? And what kingdom is it that you are building? As we saw last week, the kingdom of Satan is at war against the kingdom of God. And so we see here two kings, Herod and Jesus, two kingdoms, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan, two responses, hating and killing versus loving and being killed. And so if your life is a microcosm, then that same battle is very real within you. The same influences that were at work in Herod are at work with us. Herod's kingdom was marked by insecurity, which worked itself out in deceit and murder. And that makes sense. Because this is what Jesus said to the religious rulers of his day in John 8, chapter 44, verse 44. You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. A murderer and a liar. That's how Satan works, right? He lies and he kills. Did not the wise men, Herod, tell the wise men, go and search diligently for the child so that I may come and worship him too? A lie. What a lie. Is Herod not a murderer, just like Satan, killing the baby boys of Jerusalem in order to build and secure his own kingdom and his own greatness? Herod is a liar and a murderer because he was influenced by and listened to and believed the lies and deceptions of the enemy. Let me tell you, Satan lies to us as well. Let me tell you, Satan does not want you or me to be secure in Jesus. He does not want us to have abundant life in Christ. He wants death for us. He does not want you to find your yes in Jesus. And so he attempts to deceive you and me. And the only reason I say that is so that you and I will be on our guard. Listen, people, we have to be on our guard. So that none of us in this room 
will ever be fooled in believing, to believing that we can ever find greatness outside of Christ. We cannot. So that none of us in this room will be fooled into believing that we can ever find real security outside of Christ. We cannot. Herod could not. Why do we, who have so much less power and prestige, believe that we can? Our enemy wants us to believe what is not true and what cannot be possible. 2 Corinthians 4, 4. The God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Blinding the mind. That is a tactic tactic of Satan. It's been his game since the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve, bless their hearts, were deceived into believing that they could oppose God, that they could have a rival kingdom to his, that they could be greater than God, that they could find greatness and security apart from God. But it was all a deception. Because Satan presented them with a false reality and they attempted to embrace it. A lie from the enemy. I know this passage from 2 Corinthians. Paul is speaking about unbelievers, but he reveals a truth here about how Satan works. Not only does Satan speak what is false, he conceals what is true. Not only does Satan speak what is false, he conceals what is true. And how does he do it? He attempts to conceal the glory of Jesus, who is the image of God. And the enemy will attempt to conceal the glory of Jesus to your eyes and to my eyes as well. Because Satan knows this. When you and I have a glimpse of of the glory of Jesus, we will love him. When you and I have a glimpse of the glory of Jesus, we will serve him. We will, with everything in us, seek to build his kingdom when we see his glory. So guess what we should be praying every day? Lord Jesus, show me your glory. Let's practice. Ready? Lord Jesus, show me your glory. One more time. Lord Jesus, show me your glory. Satan attempts to conceal that glory. And he attempts to conceal the image of God that you and I should reflect. The truest thing about you and me is that we are made in the image of the one and only true and living God. And the greatest calling of our lives is to reflect that image. And so Satan prevents us from seeing what is most true and what is most beautiful about us. That we are created in God's image. That we bear that image. That we are to reflect the image of God. And so Satan hides from you and me what we are supposed to see as true and most beautiful about ourselves. So that you and I think that it's not beautiful. So that you and I will think nothing of misusing or distorting or marring what God has made so beautiful. 
as the Westminster Confession tells us, our main purpose, our chief end in life is to glorify God, to glorify Him and enjoy Him forever. Satan then wants us to glorify ourselves, bring glory to ourselves, enjoy ourselves more than we enjoy God. And so he tricks us into building his kingdom by getting us to build our own kingdoms. And if you and I are busy building our own kingdoms in hopes that what we build will make us great and give us security, then it's not difficult to deduce which kingdom is not being built, right? The kingdom of God. Two kings, two kingdoms, two responses. Matthew tells his story so that we find our yes in Jesus. Herod did not. You and I, we must. If you will be great, you must find your identity and greatness and security in Christ. Otherwise, you'll be defensive all the time in order to prove yourself and your greatness to others. You must be secure enough to pray like Jesus prayed when your identity is threatened or when you are mocked or when you are ridiculed. You and I can't effectively build the kingdom. We cannot and will not present the gospel to others. We will not love others selflessly and unconditionally for Jesus' sake unless we find our yes in Jesus. Otherwise, everything we'll, we do will be tempered with, what will they think of me if I? And we fear that we can't handle the rejection or the potential ridicule. 2 Corinthians 1.18 and following. And then we're done. But as surely as God is faithful, our message to you is not yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who is preached among you by us, was not yes and no. But in Jesus, it has always been yes. For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through him, the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. Now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us, and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. You and I must stand firm in Christ and on Christ and we must find our yes in Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, uh, we pray that you would make that a reality for us, that we would find our yes in you, that ultimate fulfillment in our life would come through knowing and loving and serving you. Lord, that we would see true greatness in our life comes from knowing and loving and serving you. Lord Jesus, make us Secure in our identity. Lord, our minds need to, to comprehend how you view us. We are sons and daughters of God. Friends of Jesus. Brothers, sisters, co-heirs. That's our identity. Lord Jesus, we are in you. I ask that you would not allow the enemy to distort your view of us. How, how you view us. 
when in faith we have turned to you. Tell us the truth about who you are and who you see us to be. And Lord, show us your glory. We believe that as we see how glorious you are, demonstrated in the things that you have done for us because of your love for us. Oh, Lord, we'll be overcome by your glory. And we will love you. And we will serve you. And Lord, seek with all our being to build your kingdom. So now, Lord, we pray that we would stand on you. And we thank you and praise you that you are a sure foundation, never changing. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.